Tone Benders, the Sound Designers Podcast. Here are your hosts, Timothy and Renee. Welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Renee Coronado, and with me today, as always, it's Tim Muirhead. Hey, Tim. Hey, Renee. How you doing? I'm doing great. And we also have with us Anos Desjardins. How are you, Anos? Hi, I'm good. Thanks. Thanks for coming on the show today. We have uh, been circling each other. I think the three of us have all kind of had online presence in the sound community for a while, but we've never actually gathered and all spoken. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I've been following you guys since day one. Oh, wow. Um, I've been like a massive fan of Tom Bender's podcast. I've listened to every episode probably more than once. So really excited to be part of the of the podcast. You're doing better than me. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, Renee doesn't listen to any episode he's not a part of. He doesn't have time in his life for that. <laughs> um, but I recently reached out to you because you mixed, well, you were the sound supervisor on the new Netflix film, Close. And I wanted to talk to you about it because you were posting on social media a bunch of stuff about how it was uh, different from previous films you'd worked on. And I wanted to talk to you about kind of jumping up from the lower budget films into the higher budget films and how you found that to be different. Tell us a bit about Close and how you got on it. Yeah, so Close is a, um, it's a Netflix original feature and starring um, Numi Rapace, who's, who you might know from films like um, the original Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. Um, and then she was in Prometheus and she's been on a series of um, features since. It's directed by Vicky Jusen, who's a British director. I think this is her second or third feature, but also her biggest to date. And it's sort of like an action drama set heavily in Morocco, and it's about a. It's based loosely on on the true story of a, a female bodyguard, a British female bodyguard who's at the time in the eighties one of one of the few female bodyguards. I mean, it's quite a male driven profession. Once she retired, she became quite known, and I think there's a few books about her. So it's sort of loosely based on her character. And I saw your credits as sound effects editor, sound designer, and supervising sound editor. That's a lot of hats on one film. I consider myself a sound effects editor at heart, and that's what I do sort of day to day. And definitely so far, my career has been essentially mainly sound effects editing. Um, and I was telling Tim earlier, like, even at the moment, a lot of my career is kind of building in two different sides. So on one side, I'm doing mainly effects editing and design for other studios and um, other supervising sound editors who are more established than myself. And then the last four or five years, I started taking on little features, indie features on the side in which I'd kind of supervise. And initially it was a bunch of shorts and I'd do kind of everything from dialogues to effects editing and mixing and then gradually took on a few features and then slowly started being able to bring on a separate dialogue editor, outsource Foley. So I've been doing like probably about 10 or 12 indie films over the last four or five years, smaller scale films budget-wise. Gradually sort of build up a bit of a rapport with, with people and then, you know, word of mouth goes around and then eventually I got a call from a sound designer who was approached for, for, for working on Klaus and he was busy at the time um, and I had met him at a few of the social sound designer events we've got in London and he just happened to think of me as to recommend me for it. I was really thankful for it, but he was, we haven't worked together, but he's um, spoken quite a few times over a beer and stuff. So he mentioned, hey, you should try, because I, I had just finished working on Trust and I think I'm very active on social media, as you've probably noticed. So I posted something about finishing. So he said, hey, I think Enos is just finished working on his show. You should give him a shout. And um, so the producers, so he, he called me and said, hey, I've, I've recommended you for, for a sound effects editor's gig on this film and uh, are you available? So I said yes and I, I went, went for a meeting with the director and producer and it wasn't until we got to meet them that I asked, uh, you know, who's supervising this? And they were like, well, we kind of wanted you to supervise it as well. <laughs> and I was like, okay, <laughs> that's pretty cool. I can do that. They were like, right, um, the film's pretty much ready to start on within a week or two. It wasn't one of those where I was on board early on, you know, pre-shoot or pre... I love getting on board long before a film's even being shot, but this wasn't the case on this one, so... Um, now, what kind of bottle of wine did you send the guy who recommended you? Oh, I, I need to see him. I've, I've promised him uh, a whole bunch of uh, rounds of drinks. Yeah, there you go. You got, you got to uh, 
take him out for dinner or something. Absolutely, absolutely. What was it like to uh, collaborate with the director? Uh, it was it was great. I mean, it's slightly different in, in this film because obviously once you come on board towards the end of a of a sort of editorial process in terms of picture, there's not that much room for sort of kind of be involved from the beginning. We, we met up with the director, had a spotting session uh, with the director and the producer, Rupert, who's uh, producing the film. We just kind of ran through it and went through all the creative concepts for the film. There's a few like themes that were sort of on, the, on a more creative side, almost approaching it in a bit of a sort of score way, creating some motifs and things. And then the rest of it was just kind of more more practical spotting. And because we were up against it schedule-wise, I, I sort of went off and then started working on it. I had about eight weeks to to cut effects and um, sort of be involved with spotting the, the Foley and for ADR and crowd and all that kind of stuff. So other than the Foley team and the dialogue editor, did you crew up the rest of the project? So the dialogue editor was already brought on earlier. She had actually been working on it for a while. The Foley also had been crewed up already by, by the facility. So initially the facility was meant to be providing the studio space for the mix and a mixer, but they were really booked up with a bunch of shows as well. So as it turned out, we ended up booking Pinewood, one of the, the second main stage of Pinewood Studios. And as things turned out, I ended up basically pre-mixing all the dialogue and effects myself. And then um, I was able to bring on a mixer for the final mix. Initially, they were going to kind of, Pinewood were offering to provide one of their in-house mixers, but I suggested sort of someone else, probably because I wanted to work with someone that I knew already. It was kind of interesting enough to step up to a bigger project, so... I wanted to kind of work within a sort of comfort zone of someone I knew. It's kind of an interesting hierarchical setup, though, because it's like the um, the sound effects editor is typically below the mixer, and the mixer is typically below the supervisor, right? So your mixer is kind of sitting in between your two roles. Yeah, I guess it's a bit of a weird one. I mean, obviously, if you're working on big features like, you know, hierarchy is usually a sound supervisor who not always even is that involved with the sound editing or design. You, you have supervisors that just supervise and sort of pitch for films and know how to put a crew together that suits the project. And then you have the supervisor designer who's, I think here in Europe is quite, quite common, especially on anything below, you know, blockbuster level. So definitely all the films I've supervised so far, I've also done effects. And up until this film, I had also mixed everything else. So the last maybe six or seven features I've done, I was uh, doing the effects editing and the pre-mix and final mix. What I would do is I'd bring on a dialogue editor and a Foley team. Um, so that would be the structure. It'd be sort of three people, you know, dialogue editor, me on effects, Foley team, and then I'd take on all that stuff and mix it all the way through to the end. So the biggest difference on this project for me was being able to bring on someone else to mix. Um, the guy who ended up mixing it was a guy called Jamie Roden, uh, who's a London-based re-recording mixer who's worked on a bunch of uh, big films before. So he's, you know, he's more experienced than I was. So it was nice to kind of be able to afford to bring someone on board. And also, it was the first time that I was able to get to the end of a project and not have to sort of carry on through the whole mix myself. Because I think that's one of the, the coolest things I found out about this, the process, was being able to get a fresh pair of ears at that final stage. You know, once you've been on it for like eight to ten weeks of editing, then you sort of, sometimes you, you think that everything you've done is, is the right thing. And you, you think, oh, it's perfect, especially if you pre-mixed it already. You kind of shaped everything. You're like, okay, cool. <laughs> so, so it can be, you can, you can risk sort of showing up to the final mix and being like, hey, there's not really much I want to do to this. I think it's perfect or as good as I want it to be. So it's nice to be challenged with someone, someone with fresh ears and, and someone also is experienced with telling stories, you know, through sound. And Did your mixer reveal anything to you? Did he, did he surprise you with any of your work? He did. I mean, one of the things that I got told when I was doing this project and a few of my peers and more experienced supervisors and colleagues they kind of mentioned to me, hey, look, listen, this is a bit of a step up for you. And, you know, you, you're age-wise, I'm 30, 34 now, so age-wise also a bit younger than some of the, the more established supervisors here, so than a lot of the mixers as well. So, so someone had told me, if you do pick up a, pick a mixer or end up working with someone, make sure that you, you know, you don't lose your, your signature, I guess, in terms of the kind of work you do. He was saying, like, it's, it's very easy for, for a mixer to try and 
support you by trying to give you advice in terms of this is how we do these things, you know, if you're a bit of a younger, less experienced supervisor. So he was like, make sure you create a report with whoever you're working with where you can feel confident to kind of speak your mind and also say no to certain ideas that they might bring on and make sure that they don't like put your, your style down. And it was quite cool because I, I always I always tend to go quite big and sort of rich and on and on the the sounds I use and the sort of dynamics of the mix. Um, so quite often when I've done stuff and sent it over to a different supervisor or mixer, when I listen listen to the final mix, it's been a bit more reduced and like it's been a bit made a bit smaller and more um, less dynamic or something. Um, on day one, we we kicked off with the opening sequence of uh, of the film, which obviously has a little action sequence there when the car explodes and stuff. And as soon as he played that and had a listen through it, and then he stopped it, he's like. Um, I think we can push this a bit more. So I was like, oh, yes, we're off to a good start. <laughs> I think the first time I've worked with Mixer has just said, you know, let's we, we can push your stuff up a bit more instead of being like, whoa, I think it's a bit heavy-handed. So I was like, okay, we're going to get along. <laughs> There's a few sequences in the film where our main character gets into hand-to-hand combat, and each one kind of... I don't know if theme is the right word, but one all takes place within the confines of a very small van. Another takes place uh, underwater. Another takes place uh, where the main character is handcuffed behind her back. That might actually be the most violent sounding fight. But there seemed to be like a different way that you had to attack each fighting sequence in this. They're not all the same. If you could talk about how you went about the different sequences. Yeah, I think that was one of the things that caught my attention when I first got to watch the film. Because as you say, each of the fight sequences in the film are very defined in their style. They all all seem to have something quite unique. Because we, you know, we've all seen action films you know, a thousand times and you know, hand-to-hand combat or pistol, you know, gun gun shootouts or any any type of fights have been done you know a million times so it felt like she Vicky the director had really picked something unique to introduce into each fight to make it something kind of different and memorable the opening fight in the car uh, that was all about establishing Numi's character Sam as a sort of highly trained close protection officer so it's very much about her being in control you've got the journalist woman in the back shouting her head off but Numi's character is really in control she does everything very methodically machine like machine like yeah she, she she knows what she's doing quick thinking to do what she did, does there, takes out the, the different characters very quickly and, and accurately. So that, that was all about kind of that accuracy, almost like military trained professional. And um, so, that, so that's that. And the, the first one was all kind of gun driven. So that was kind of the only one that is, has shooting in it. And... Fight later on when when they're in the hotel room, the hostel, and the the guys break in. That's again a different one because they they break in. Both characters get handcuffed with zip ties. So what would be a normal kind of hand to hand combat becomes quite different because Numi's character is fully handcuffed through these with his zip ties. Yeah, there's more kicking. Yeah. Whereas in the first one, sonically as well, which I was trying to go for very precise. All the guns sound very sharp um, and sort of defined, and everything sort of very calculated. The second one, and I was trying to make kind of almost remove as much production sound as I could from the first one to make it really clean and direct. The second one is it's all about making it scrappy and making it really sort of realistic and almost pushing in those PFX and all the dirt and the grit of that sort of location sound just to add to the chaos of it. I was just using the effects in the Foley to really mark the scraping of the feet and the struggle of, of the voice. And Numi did a bunch of ADR as well for um, breathing and, and sort of effort sounds for that sequence. 
her ADR is almost rammed in with production sound as well and other breathing. So it's all kind of quite messy, but it kind of makes it feel very visceral, I think. And then you've got that big sequence towards the third act of the film that's quite unique for me because I'd, I'd never really seen a sort of hand-to-hand -hand combat sequence underwater in that way. But for those who haven't seen the film, they, they're on a, one of those boats that goes into the ocean to do deep-sea fishing. The idea was that the whole bottom, like inside of the, of the ship, is full of water and full of these fish which are still alive, right? To sort of, I guess that's how they keep them. So when Numi's character falls in there with one of the one of the guys that she's fighting, you're in this space that's full of fish meant to be kind of swimming around and they get excited by these two people that have dropped in. So the interesting thing there was that the director, Vicky, was from the start of our involvement in the film, she was adamant that that scene would have no music. So I was like, wow, this is going to be quite cool. Because, you know, most action sequences in films are heavily scored, right? I mean, and in this film, like the, the scrappy one with the handcuffs and stuff, that is has some heavy music going through it, as does every other fight sequence in the film. Uh, but this, this last one, she was like, no, we're not going to have any music in there, no score. So that was kind of created for a quite cool platform to do some something interesting with the sound there yeah you did big stuff with the fish in, in that moment too that sequence was the trickiest i think of all largely because of how vfx <laughs> vfx deliveries work oh yeah so what, what happened on that sequence was i had started working to some early previous stuff but that kept changing and the director was changing sort of some of the, the order of how things were moving around and the general idea was still there but um the, the final kind of visuals weren't there till very late I basically got the, the final VFX, it wasn't even final, but the final kind of animations and timings at 6 p.m. of the final day of the final mix <laughs> of the film. <laughs> so that followed, we were meant to finish around 6 p.m., which is a normal time to finish on a on mix stages. So we carried on doing overtime till 10 a.m. the next morning. Wow. That, that was the final day of the mix, so that was like a massive session. It was about 1 o'clock in the morning when I started doing that sequence, because obviously we got a bunch of VFX deliveries right at the end of the whole process, and I kind of went through, checked all the other ones, and by the time we got to this sequence... There was entire sequence stuff that hadn't been designed yet. And, you know, this is the last day of the mix. But luckily, I, I knew that this was kind of coming. So I, I'd, I had prepared some building blocks of stuff to work with. I had prepared a bunch of stuff using, um, you know, sound particles? I love sound particles. Yeah, I bought it for a film I did last year, and, and I've just been using it a lot on stuff. So I, I used that and uh, a whoosh from the guys at Tonstorm. Yep. So I started feeding that with a bunch of different bubble and water rushing stuff and created these big sort of... 5-1 and or stereo down mixes of these big water whooshes. So I created this kind of little library of everything from big, low, watery whooshes to little bubbly, high-end stuff. So I could stop spotting these swarms as kind of units as opposed to like trying to design things from scratch.
my style is usually quite, I like to do things quite hyper real and very sort of richly textured and stuff. So realistically, if you go underwater or if you have like a lot of sound effects libraries you get that are hydrophone recordings are quite limited in their um, frequency response. So they sound a bit tinny quite a lot of the time. I used a lot of the stuff from um, Tonstorm's underwater library because that, that library is such it's a great. go-to library for me. Yeah for underwater stuff. And so you get these really rich, rich water sounds that have a very wide frequency response, which is really cool. Did you cut the BGFX? Yeah, so I cut everything. The I, backgrounds were, there was a lot going on. Yeah, especially once you get into into Morocco, the towns and cities. There's a place where, like from a story perspective, when they first went into that Moroccan hotel, where there was so much going on, there's a baby crying and there's people having an argument and it was just there was just tons going on there. It was doing so much storytelling with the background effects, with stuff that you're not even seeing on camera. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, the, the opening of the film, you have you have the sequence in the English mansion again, which is a very protected environment, uh, with Sophie's character sort of living in this overprotected world where she doesn't leave the house much, and she's very protected. And she's you know, even in the house as well, everything kind of sounds quite. You know, when we cut to the interior of the mansion, you have this clock, kind of grandfather clock that's ticking again, very mechanical. And then she, you go outside, you hear the bells ringing again, very kind of. This, this sort of rhythmic, monotonous sounds, and everything's kind of trying to enhance that. And then once you you cut to them in a van entering um, the city with the police, and then obviously very quickly you realize that something's wrong. Right away there, the idea was, okay, we're away from our safe space now. It's all like unexpected sounds coming from everywhere. So that, that was kind of trying to highlight that that side of things. Uh, and then they're sort of in a back alley, and then they walk onto the main street, and it's in the middle of a market. So there again, we tried to kind of, you, you start cutting to all these different activities in the market the, the characters are seeing and again you're punching with the sound very strongly to try and make it feel kind of aggressive and some fish being fried and it's all these close-ups of stuff so trying to make the sounds very jarring and in the 5-1 mix as well it's all kind of we're jumping from one side to the other and it's like someone shouting suddenly from the side. That was the thing that was um, unique to me was how many vocal elements were, they felt, um, they felt uh, appropriate and crafted and, and that they, uh, but they, they really filled up the BGs, especially in those moments. Yeah, absolutely. And we did do a crowd session for, to record a bunch of stuff, like Moroccan language stuff. So we got a bunch of actors in and recorded stuff for that. I used stuff, um, again, from Tonstorms. They have a, a Morocco library thing. Oh, they do. They do, yeah. So I was like, originally I was really tempted to go down for a few days and try and record some stuff. Uh, but then because I got on board quite late in the process, there wasn't the luxury of too much time to go down and do stuff. So I managed to get that library. And then um, Tillman from Tonstorm, he said, hey, I recorded a bunch of stuff while I was doing the library with my handheld recorder as well, which I never released. Send me your email, I'll send some stuff over and see if there's any useful stuff in there. So there's a lot of cool snippets of his personal handheld recorder as well that came in really valuable because there are little bits of people showering in the market. And so I spent a lot of time trying to build the vocal elements for a lot of those sort of sequences where it's all really busy and hectic. What a cool connection. Yeah, from there onwards, you kind of, everything sonically is trying to make the place feel very insecure. So like, you know, waver thin walls and when they're in that hostel, you can hear people arguing around and the toilet is dripping and kind of everything's kind of a bit ramshackle. The door is door doesn't sound secure and, and safe because you have those big doors in the in the fortress early on, really mechanical um, very safe, almost like the idea was to make it feel like a prison. So, even though it's it's meant to be safe for the for Sophie's character, it feels like she's in a prison. And then the third act is basically from the moment they pick up that red taxi car. That car, I, I felt, became a character from the moment they got it. 
initially I was going to use uh, you know library stuff from the production sound the, the car had a really cool cool sound like really broken and sort of rattly and whiny sound so I spoke with the director and they were like hey we actually bought that car for the film so we didn't rent it so it's still standing in a garage somewhere in Morocco so you know if you want to go out and record it or find someone to, to record it you're more than welcome so I, I really pushed for that and managed to find a guy locally who was close to the place where the car was stored so he went out and recorded a, a whole kind of library of the car wow. and it, it was so valuable because when I heard the sounds I was like wow this sounds so cool and it became such, so much easier to cut and also just so much more original the, the sound was felt right it wasn't like a clean you know modern car it really had that character to it not every car in a film is, is has to be a character you have certain films where you just see a car taking someone from place A to place B but in this film I felt like it became their third character alongside as they it's their vehicle to kind of go and do everything they did to investigate what's happening and to flee basically so I felt like that was it was worth trying to create that into a character. They were with it long enough to kind of for it to be a, a third character there. So the sound of the first act was this sort of methodical, overly secure, very kind of mechanical and safe, monotonous sounding space. The second act, if there was a main theme, would be like the unexpected sounds of the city and sort of chaotic, unsafe environment. And the third one, the car kind of became the, the main element of the, that was different to the other elements. Um, to switch gears here, what was it like working with Netflix? And I'm talking specifically with regards to deliverables and schedules and, and all of that. Like, how was, how was the Netflix pipeline and workflow compared to the other stuff that you've done? Well, the main, the main difference was the sheer amount of deliverables we had to do for the film. Because um, most films I've done before, you know, you, you deliver your standard DM, DME stems and M&Es and, um, you know, you do 5.1 and stereo mix downs and stuff. But on this one, there was... Obviously, we did a theatrical mix, so we had all these different um, deliverables for that. But then there was a near-field. The main difference was actually having to do the netflix spec near-field mix, because um, obviously the, the film is a Netflix original, so the main platform will be on Netflix, um, where people will be listening to it on you know, portable devices or definitely in stereo most of the time. Um, so you, you, know, you do an optimized Netflix mix, which is essentially a bit like a TV mix, right, where you're working to kind of R128 type... I think it's slightly varied to R128, but it's that type of uh, reduced dynamic range. So yeah, we, we had the whole final mix, uh, a week effects premixing, a week dialogue premixing outside of Pinewood in a smaller space. And then we had two weeks final mixing on a big stage. And I was on, on the final mix, I was mixing dialogues and Jamie Roden was taking the lead as the lead mixer, was doing was mixing all my effects and the music. Yeah, that, that was really cool because one of the things that, that that allowed me to do was not be bogged down with the actual mechanics of the mix throughout the whole two-week final mix and have more time to have the director's ear. And, like, what you know, we'd watch, watch through a scene, the director would give some notes, Jamie would go and do the notes, and that time I could be speaking with the director and the producer and we can actually have a bit more of a sort of constructive, collaborative chat as opposed to me just, like, fiddling the faders and doing all the, the notes, which is often the case. So often, often you have that sort of thing where you watch a scene, get some notes, do them, and then get back to talking with them. Whereas now it's kind of like there's more space for, for actually talking with the director. But yeah, once we finished the final mix itself, the 5-1 mix, then that was just the beginning. That was just the main sort of theatrical mix deliverables. So obviously from there, you've got, you know, all the dialogue, music and effects stems and then the M&E tracks for that and then all the stereo mix downs for it. Then there were some different versions for Germany who were going to have a theatrical release. So there was some different opening titles. And then we had like two extra days to do a Netflix mix basically for the film. Which you know, I won't lie. It's, it's not. It's obviously reduced dynamically, so it's it's a bit uh, a bit disappointing always to have to do that 
it's the nature of, of doing a broadcast mix. What was that process like? I mean, you didn't just put limiters on stuff. Did you just sit and run through the whole thing again? Jamie took the lead on, on that. He's a much more experienced mixer than me, and I was really good to have him on board for that as well. We took the original session, and then we sort of worked basically on stems, but directly from the original sort of VCAs. There was a certain element of having limiters on there to just to control things, but it was more actual riding of, of faders than just you know sticking limiters on things. You have to sort of pick your battles in terms of what sequences you want to give some dynamic range to and which ones you can't. So you kind of go go through it and sort of start carving out and then measure it and keep working working to that. So try and maximize every every square inch of LUFS. And they have you hitting 23? 23, I think it was like plus minus 1 dB, I think. We had it pretty much as much on the plus side as we could because it's quite a loud film. Definitely some of the big action sequences in the, in the theatrical mix, when they kick in, they really kick in dynamically. And you kind of lose that in the, in the Netflix mix a bit. Yeah, for sure. That's going to be the majority of your consumption. Exactly, yeah. So it's kind of, it's kind of interesting times for that. Yeah, it is something that as, as designers and mixers, it's, it's important for us to develop a style and an aesthetic that translates well, or even that, that starts there and then you know, translates out, right? That takes that as the primary deliverable as opposed to the theatrical, which might be the more beautiful one, but it'll be, just be the less observed one. Yeah, it's kind of interesting with Netflix because obviously they, they're a streaming platform, right? If I'm not mistaken, they've just sort of changed their, their specs. So they, they're trying to do a lot of their, their bigger projects with Dolby Atmos as a sort of default deliverable. Yes. Which is quite, which is really awesome. The material is there in terms of future-proofing and, and being able to have those deliverables, you know, for, for different formats looking forward. But um, it's kind of interesting seeing, seeing Netflix sort of being the ones pushing things like Dolby Atmos. So one last thing, you did the Tim Preble virtual internship, didn't yeah. you? Yeah, so... Oh, wow. That was the first time I heard your name, so I've been kind of following right. you since then. Yeah, so, so I mean, I, I moved to... I grew up in... I'm Finnish-Canadian, grew up in the south of Spain, uh, and grew up playing drums and bass and stuff in bands, and eventually decided to go and study music um, in the country where, in Europe, where music is most known to come from, which is the Britain. So I moved to Manchester in 2007 to study audio engineering, and the idea was to become a sort of music... Uh, sort of uh, recording and mixing engineer for music. And uh, we had a small module on, on film sound, which I did at, at the school. About the time I was finishing, Tim Preble, uh, which I'd been following for a while on his, with his Music of Sound blog, put out the call for this virtual in- internship thing. And I got super lucky to be picked. I was literally just, just about to finish my studies, so it couldn't have come at a better time. Within a month of, of that internship, I was like, okay, this is what I want to do with my life. I don't want to do music anymore. I want to do film. This is so cool. The cool thing about learning from Tim was, yeah, that, you know, he said from day one, listen, I'm not here to teach anyone Pro Tools. We'll talk a bit about session templates and stuff, but really it's about story and storytelling. So a lot of what we did was analyzing, like watching films, analyzing the narrative of them and how the narrative was supported with, with sound. So very much about script analysis and, and how that transferred to screen and to sound. And, and that's for me the most valuable thing of all, because, you know, we all love geeking out on plugins and workflows and, and specs and stuff, which is part of what we do. But, you know, I, I consider myself 30% sound editor and 70% storyteller. Uh, I think that's ultimately what, what we strive to do, right? So that was really cool. That, the main thing I got from Tim was this idea of, like, we're storytellers as much as the writer is. And, you know, how can we help telling the story with, with the sound? I love recreating the reality of the world that we see in, the, in each film, but the most interesting thing is kind of understanding what the, core, what the core story is, what the character arcs are, what the different acts are, and then try and kind of embellish that with, with making you know, the sound follow that, those story arcs and support them. As we were talking before with the different, you know, the, the very secure opening of the film and the very chaotic and unsecure middle of the film and sort of following, tapping into the core elements of the story and then trying to support those. That's the most cool thing. 
But um, yeah, I, I, every time I have one of these projects where I kind of feel like a bit of a milestone, I always email Tim and say, thank you, thank you so much. I still haven't met the guy in person. <laughs> it's crazy because I basically owe him my whole career. So it's pretty mad. Tim probably does, no longer does the virtual internship. So don't email him asking don't if you can him. do it, okay? Because we got in trouble. We talked about it on another episode and he got a ton of emails. So do not email him about it, okay? Leave him in peace. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Except for NSU, owe him at least a, a, a modular synth or yeah, something. That's, yeah, a modular synth or... Uh, I don't think he needs any mics. I was going to say some more mics, but I think he's got plenty of those. Um, <laughs> he doesn't need any more sense either. Yeah, yeah. Thanks to everyone who listens and participates in the show. Thanks to Anos Desjardins for jumping on with us today. Thanks to Stacy Dupas for letting us bend and twist her voice on our bumpers. You can follow the show at the Tonebenders and go to ToneBendersPodcast.com to leave a comment. You can support the podcast by shopping at ToneBendersPodcast.com slash Amazon or ToneBendersPodcast.com slash BH. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next time. See ya. See ya. Thanks for listening to Tone Vendors. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you listen on iTunes or Stitcher, please write us a review while you're there. To support the show, go to ToneVendorsPodcast.com and click through our Amazon link or leave us a tip. You can also download and listen to our entire show archive there and leave a comment on our site or on SoundCloud. Keep up to date by following at the Tone Vendors on Twitter or find Tone Vendors Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. Email us with your questions and ideas at info at tonevendorspodcast.com. I don't know what happened to my voice just then, but like something like crawled in my throat and just <laughs> caused an issue. I was very impressed with uh, Enos's ways to concentrate and keep speaking <laughs> you while you were just it. like dying in front of him. <laughs> it's just like, he'll get over it. I, the car, the car had a very distinctive voice. <laughs> <coughs> I'm going to go drink some water. <laughs>